Koiso and welcome to the Welsh Music Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Neil. How's it going, mate? Very good, yeah. I'm glad to, uh, I think it's safe to say, get out of our comfort zone, really, as indie rock kids, really, uh, yeah, this definitely. episode. Um, bit of uh, drum and bass, um, Panath artist, uh, high contrast, quite interesting one. I know Helia and I've known her a while. I got in touch with her and she told me what album, like I said in the, in the podcast, I was a little bit uh, nervous about it because, yeah, as you said, right out of our comfort zone. But that's exactly what we wanted to do with this podcast. It is, yeah. Um, re-engaging with classic albums, discovering new stuff as well. Uh, it's been great, you know, getting feedback on social media where people have, oh, I've heard this track, for, uh, you know, album for ages. I've gone out and bought it. You know, we had that with the 60 Foot Dolls with Dave and... Uh, the alarm as well and um, so uh, yeah it was nice to broaden my horizons a bit and also like showcasing the sort of diversity that we have in welsh Absolutely, music yeah. not just you know people outside of wales may only know welsh music as being you know a certain thing tom jones julie bassey and maybe the cool cymru artists but as we both know and and, and everyone who's probably listening to us that is, is a lot bigger than that but even from our point of view exploring something like drum and bass was um yeah real eye-opener and not just that, taking his drum and bass to the world now. Yeah. Gra- Grammy nomination for this weekend. Yeah, Absolutely well, incredible. yeah. So, yeah, we mentioned that he's nominated for a Grammy. Maybe by the time you, you listen to this, you, you will know if he's won. Shortlisted uh, in the, the best remix recording category for his remix of uh, Georgia Smith's The One. Yeah, so fingers crossed and good luck to uh, to Lincoln, uh, a.k.a. High Contrast, uh, at the Grammys. Yeah, and it was just nice uh, nostalgic point of view for me, really. You're in about uh, Kruger magazine. Uh, she worked with um, Mike Williams, who's the last ever editor, not only the last editor of The Enemy, a Welshman as well. Yeah, as ever, hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you could uh, be so kind as to subscribe to us on any of the uh, the podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that'd be, that'd be really great. I want to try and get this uh, podcast out to as many people as possible. Yeah, thank you so much for the support we've received. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, as, as ever, any feedback or any suggestions for, for special episodes or, or guests you want us to uh, talk to, get in contact. We're on Twitter at Welsh Music Pod, Facebook and Instagram at Welsh Music Podcast, or you could email us at uh, welshmusicpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, tell all your friends about the pod. Uh, we we want to reach as many people as possible. Um, if you could be so kind to leave a little short review on iTunes or a rating, it'll do us the world of good. Thanks so much. Jocam Rando. So, Helia, welcome to the Welsh Music Podcast. Thank you for coming. Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're more than welcome. I think we first met uh, through Twitter. I just moved to London in, it must have been about 2010. And then you, I think, come to Cardiff and set up We Are Cardiff. And I remember that being a bit of a big deal at the time, kind of predated that concept, um, Humans of New York. What gave you that idea? Well, so it w- I think it was around 2010, but I think we knew each other through Twitter before that for some reason. I can't really remember why. Twitter was great back then. Twitter wasn't it? was great back then. It was like being in a pub where you yeah. just chat to people. It was really nice. Yeah, not many people on there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd been at university in Cardiff. So I was born in Cardiff originally and lived here till I was like nine or 10 and then moved away. My dad, well, I mean, we moved loads of places before that as well but then I moved away then and then came back for university so all of my teenage years I wasn't in Cardiff at all so didn't ever go out here didn't know anything about the scene or anything came back for university in 2000 and then ended up in that period after 2000 moved to America for a year then moved back to Cardiff moved to Sheffield for a year and it was just after I moved back from Sheffield which was 2009 that was when I set up We Are Cardiff and that was when I messaged you and was like come be on my blog (laughs) 
I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, yeah, we never tried, we never quite worked out. I think you asked me a couple of times, I think, when I was in London and when I, well, working in London and in Cardiff. Um, you were travelling a lot though, right? It was yeah, a lot, you were really busy. But yeah. I did um, end up helping you out with the documentary. You did. Yeah. You, sh- you shot the, we went to a wassail. We did. Yeah, it was mental. Great <laughs> Yeah, it was really good. I think they still do. It was at the Riverside uh, uh, Market Garden, which is in Pontcana Field, Pontcana Field? Yeah, yeah. At the top of Butte Park. I don't know if they still do it, but they did a wassail where they were like blessing the orchard and I don't know what it is, that they, what a wassail is, but we walked around we and... found out that day. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned you, you've not always lived in Cardiff um, or Wales, uh, moved around a bit when, when you were younger, born in Wales to Iranian uh, immigrant parents, but I think I saw a profile on you when I was looking at my research and it said all roads lead back to Cardiff. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's really weird. So yeah, I was born here originally and then like when I was younger, we ended up, we moved abroad and then we came back and then lived in Exeter, lived in Southampton. That's where I was a teenager and then went to university in London and didn't enjoy London at all. And loads of my friends were at university in Cardiff and it was just after Human Traffic had come out. And I remember watching Human Traffic with my flatmates in London at uni and being like, wow, that seems like a fun place. Um, so my friends from school had gone to university in Cardiff, so I came up here to visit them. And I remember the second I stepped off the bus, I was like, I love it. It, fe- it really did feel like coming home. It was really weird. Yeah, it was really weird. And then I finished my degree, um, I did the year in America, came back and then just ended up staying here. And then after my, I did my master's in Sheffield. And then after that, again, I applied for a couple of different jobs and I got interviews for two. One of them was for Six Music actually. And then, and the other one, so one was in London, that was that one. And then the other one was for the National Assembly for Wales in Cardiff. So I had two interviews and I got the job in the assembly. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm moving back to Cardiff again. (laughs) So yeah. Um, You mentioned uh, human traffic. How sort of accurate a representation of nightlife in Cardiff was it at the time? (laughs) Well, well, I moved here the year, I think I moved here the year... Was it? Oh, maybe it was the year that it was released that I that I first came here. I'd say it was fairly accurate. Um, at that time, I was going out a lot because I had a lot of disposable income and a lot more energy than I have now. <laughs> and um, there, so the clubs that were open at the time that we went to were the hip was the Hippo Club. There was Apocalypse that was on uh, Queen Street. There was the Emporium, the Model Inn. Or I think it was a new Model Inn at, at that time. There was the Toucan. I can't remember what the other ones were, were Welsh Club as well, Club Forbach. But you actually had to be a member to get in there. Yeah, I remember that. They would give you a, like, a, I'm learning, I'm learning card, yeah. Yeah, which, which was nice. Um, so I went, I, I got in there. I don't remember when they got rid of that, but that was great because you had to, it really felt like it was hard to get in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what are the, so the nights that were going on at the time, I think Time Flies was the big one that was doing, tra- it was doing trance and house and all sorts of different stuff. And there were a couple of different drum and bass nights on. There was Silent Running and Bulletproof. And there were there was a there was a reggae party that used to happen down in the bay, but the, at that time, so that was two thousand, I think they just finished the barrage, or the barrage wasn't even finished yet. And the bay and the city centre felt very separate from each other. They didn't like now they feel very connected, a lot closer together than they did then. So I remember going down there for the reggae parties that were in this. I think it's on it's on Butte Street. It used to be a cafe. I can't remember what it's called. Mama G's or something like that. I can't remember. Mama Brown's or something. Yeah. But they, yeah, it was like just a little cafe, and then it was a reg like it was reggae parties. Yeah. It was they were brilliant. It was really good. Um, so there was all basically all sorts of stuff going on everywhere, and we did 
there was a lot of after parties. There was a place on Clifton Street that had sort of after hours parties. I don't remember if it was like a working man's club or something, but all I remember is I would end up there and it would be very late at night or early in the morning. So I was never really sure where it was <laughs> in the daytime. I wouldn't be able to point it out to you now, but I just remember you went through a door and it was a really long corridor and then you got into somewhere, some Narnia, and uh, they had, yeah, there was just like, it was just like an after hours party that went on forever. So yeah, I'd say it was fairly accurate. And um, you were working at the famous uh, catapult record store would that have been around this time yeah I so I moved to when did I move to Cardiff I think it would have been 2000 and a couple of months after I started I started at uh, university in Cardiff I dropped out of university in London it was just it was too expensive and too big and scary I hated it and Cardiff was lovely so I moved here started at university and after a month or two I was like I am skint you know because there was a lot of beer to drink and a lot of CDs to buy so I was looking for a job and I was walking through the high street arcade and they had a help wanted sign in the window and catapult is a you know it's a dance music record shop and they are all record shops kind of have the reputation of being scary places full of intimidating people and so and I'm like the exact opposite of the sort of person I think you expect to work in a place like that because you know big smile stupid face hey guys do you want some jungle how's it going and the lovely as well you sort of ah uh, yes so they yeah I was all I don't know who gave me that nickname the lovely phoenix but the, we had a gut we had a customer that used to come into Catapult called Marcus he still produces music under the name MI3 I think he's still here he was from New York originally had a beautiful singing voice I think he produced music or something just this really like really warm not eccentric but very charismatic guy he came into the shop a couple of times I think he wanted us to sell his CDs and then he got us to play to DJ at his nights and on one of the flyers he put me he put my name as the lovely phoenix and then it just stayed being the lovely phoenix all the time <laughs> so yeah that was Marcus that did that and then after that I changed it to la lovely because I tried to change it to the lovely on Facebook and it wouldn't let me do that because they were like that's not a real name <laughs> so I don't know why and now I can't change it because now Facebook has changed all its rules about you can't just put nonsense words and it has to be your real name so yeah but you know if I want to identify as that I, that's how I identify exactly so we talked about yeah. human traffic being a representation of uh, the nightlife in Cardiff but wasn't Catapult featured on human traffic and was that a good representation as well so I'm still not 100% sure that it was definitely the record shop that Catapult was in it I think it was so it's I think it's the scene where um, the guy go, I think it's actually just Justin Kerrigan who goes and goes, it got any jungling guy? <laughs> and I think that's the scene that is meant to be shot in there. But I remember going into the shop and thinking, I don't know where that could have possibly been filmed because it doesn't feel like the shape of the shop could fit that. But it was a real, it was a really buzzing place. It was, I met so many amazing people while I worked there. Um, loads of creative people, loads of really mad people. And so this, it was around 2000, 2001. All of the, the tickets for all the events that were happening were sold through the shop, either through us or through Spillers. All of the new releases came through the shop because it was a time, it was a really interesting time in terms of how technology was starting to change things. But still at that point, the internet was very, it wasn't really a place where you could Google some words and be like, I want female vocal clown step from 20. 15 and type it in and then it, the internet goes here's all of the yeah. music like that so if you wanted any music you had to you had to hear it or someone had to tell you about it so working in a record shop it was just it was the best thing ever because we had access to all the new releases that were coming out so you just heard everything when it came out it was amazing it was a real it felt like a real hub and I really felt its loss when it closed um, I'm really glad that Spillers is still open and I think there's a real there's a there's a big space for what a record shop does beyond just selling records yeah. because it's a place where communities of people meet they you know they talk to each other they share information they look you know if you're in a band and you're looking for a, you know a new whatever 
that's the record shop would be the place where you would you might meet people you know in stores were amazing we had LTJ Bookham did an in store in there we had lo- we had one extra did a, a live broadcast from the basement we had loads of stuff like that happened and it felt more like a family in a community like I guess every record shop does and I, I think it's a real shame that so many of them across Wales have closed so I'm really glad Spillers is still open yeah the institution yeah in my research and in speaking with you, you were uh, you were reviews editor for Kruger magazine. I just remember Kruger at the time and being in love with it. The format was different, you know, the matte instead of the gloss set up by uh, two mics and a Joe. Uh, That's right, yeah, two mics and a Joe. Two mics and a Joe. <laughs> One of the uh, mics went on to be um, enemy editor. Yep. What, what happened to the other mic yeah. and Joe? Uh, so the other mic, I think, is doing special effects for Hollywood films. Fancy. Uh, Joe went on to do loads of stuff, worked for Bjork and uh, a bunch of other stuff. He runs a digital agency called Dark Arts of Digital, and he's just opened a gin distillery oh, nice. uh, in Chepstow. It's called Civil Circle Distillery, and I'll take my payment in a bottle of gin. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Um, they've just done a limited edition gin for the Libertines, so they're doing... Oh, you know, yeah, Gunga Gin. Yeah. What title, yeah. It's a really good title, yeah. So they're doing lots of different things. And I met them through Catapult as well. So so I went to university to study English literature and I'd always thought of my... I'd always in some way wanted to do something to do with writing. So novels or whatever, journalism was the thing that appealed to me the most out of all career paths. And so I was doing English literature. It was the only thing I was really good at at school was anything to do with words. Like I just was so terrible at anything else. There was, I didn't have a choice. It's like that's the only thing that I could possibly do. So I started at Catapult. I was doing English literature. My first ever proper commission to write anything musical was through someone I met at Catapult who's James McLaren um, who sadly passed away a few years ago but he used to work for the Welsh Music Foundation and they had a magazine back in the early 2000s I think it was called Sound Nation but I can't remember exactly Uh, it was an A5 it was a glossy A5 booklet and basically was full of like charts that were submitted by all the record shops around the country and details of gigs and information about um, you know things that people might need if they were bands or whatever and he came I met him in the shop as well and he came in and we chatted and he gave me my first ever commission um, which was writing about the dance music element of the Welsh Music Awards Okay, they don't do the Welsh Music Awards anymore but at the time it was a very I think it might have even been set up that year or the year before but it was to try and recognise the massive breadth of everything that happens in the Welsh music scene because it is it tends to be a thing that we think of it more in terms of all the bands because there are so many bands that have been so successful but there's also massive urban scene dance I guess urban comes under the umbrella of dance in my head but lots of different types of genres it's not just you know guitar guitar music music. so I I reported on that for him and anyway so uh, Catapult was how I met Kruger as well so I was DJing uh, I started DJing while I was working there as well because everyone in there was DJ so I was just I just had to be yeah eventually they were like you're gonna buy some decks so all my it's so funny I I I got a job there because I was a skint student and I literally every penny that I had I spent in that shop. Did you get a discount? We got a discount, but I, I like all of my money. It was like it was ridiculous. But I was like, it's fine. I just eat rice krispies for a year. It's fine. <laughs> I don't need don't need food. So I started DJing, and we, me, Lucy, um, who owned the shop, and another guy called Max, we were the resident DJs at a place called Sugar that opened on Womanby Street. So oh, was, I remember that place. Yeah. yeah. So it started as U- Union or e- Indeb. Indeb, yeah. yeah. So it started as that, and it was it was kind of set up as a fancy members bar. members like quite slick members bar and then it only ran as that for like a couple of months and I think they realised there's not enough 
people who could be members so they opened it up to everybody and then it rebranded as sugar and i think it was the sugar opening party where i met them um and they're just so ridiculous this is just typifies exactly what they were like basically i i was djing and there was the three of them they came and we were all around this they were all around the same age i think so they came over to me and they were like oh you're a djing and i was like hello yes i'm dj and uh, it was mike i think mike who's now at sight and sound he was like oh so you're djing we, we're editors of a magazine we've got a magazine and i was like oh okay so tell me about your magazine so they did a bit and then he was like so if you're DJing you must be able to get free drinks can you get some free drinks <laughs> and I was like I don't know because I've just met you but anyway they were just they're a great laugh and so I did I did blag them some free drinks obviously nice. yep and then uh, we just kept chatting and I said I was at you know I was DJing but I you know wanted to get more into writing so I started doing reviews for them and that yeah so that was how I, was, I met them I just met so many people working at Catapult like it was the most amazing experience and education it was really good I learned loads working there and one of the people I worked with is the person whose album I have chosen oh. to talk about later spoiler alert spoiler alert yeah <laughs> when you were uh, doing the reviews for Kruger um, was that live music or just um, physical releases? When I first started writing for Kruger it was live and CD like album reviews basically I, I turned my work in on time always kept to the word limit I was pretty prompt I was available I took on feedback and I you know changed things um, because I was trying to make the, my writing better and I was really invested in the magazine and I think because I was quite dependable and I just you know kept turning up eventually the, the magazine started getting bigger so they had more advertising they put more features in it went from three colour to full colour and I think the task of managing the whole thing became a bit much so eventually Mike asked me to be the reviews editor to look after the review section because the reviews is really fiddly because there would be I don't know anywhere between like 15 to 30 things that we wanted to review so that you know they don't all go to the same person they go to different people so then you have to manage that whole process it was really time consuming and again this is you know this is very early internet yeah. day so all of the review material that came through to us was in the form of CD nobody sent us mp3s everything was a physical something so it was a lot of admin and for him it was a real time suck because obviously he wants to you know look after the whole of the magazine and not have to deal with millions of reviewers going I haven't had my review copy my name's not on the guest list I can't get into into the gig me so I did all of that instead <laughs> I did really enjoy it it was a great it was a really great learning experience for editing for dealing with people for trying to you know find things that would fit the the tone of the magazine so one, one of the most important lessons that I learned there and I said this to Mike fairly recently and he doesn't remember saying it to me which is really funny because it's one of the key bits of information advice that's really stuck in my head yeah. as being really important is that I gave something quite a bad review and we were going to give it the lead review and I think it was a live review of Milo at the Welsh Club and I'd gone along and it was a live band but without a live drummer and without live vocals so it's kind of a weird sort of semi-live semi-electronic setup and the drum machine skipped a little bit and it just felt really it felt a bit flat so it had some of the live elements but it just wasn't very anyway it wasn't a great gig and I wrote a bit of a scathing review of it and Mike read it and then he was like you know we haven't got we haven't got loads of space in the magazine so I would rather we crammed it full of stuff we love instead of wasting space on stuff we don't like and I was like oh it's like light bulb yeah. I would rather read reviews of people who really enjoyed things and things that were really good than, than reviews where people are slagging things off and it was real. It was like a real eye opener moment for me in terms of how you approach your journalism and your writing and everything generally but he doesn't remember saying that to me so that's <laughs> funny that's the thing that's really stuck with me and um, what was the Welsh music scene like at the time and what sort of acts from Wales would you have reviewed back then oh man well all sorts of stuff we had when, when the magazine 
magazine was forms I, I only actually found this out a couple of weeks ago because I dropped off a load of magazines so I, I've, the, the official Kruger archive is still at my house so I'm currently <laughs> dissolving it because it's taking up too much space so I brought in a, a load of magazines yeah, for you, you James but I also took a load a full back catalogue to Leon West who is second son and like a million other producer names has loads of labels did loads of stuff um, in Kruger when we were when we were doing it and I didn't realise the reason that he's in it so much is because they were all working together in a coffee shop at the time oh, okay. and I didn't realise that so Leon was a I think he started off doing more hip hop and urban type stuff he's re- you know he's really eclectic and does all sorts of different artists now like he's you know produced Daniel Johnson and a million other people but a lot of the stuff that we featured to start with um, we had a it was a really good diverse mix there was a lot of because of the connection with Leon and you know the general link into the urban scene I hate that word but you know what I mean um, we had a lot of hip hop acts in there so that was really you know it was it was very diverse um, there were features on I mean I have to go back through every episode but Plastic Ray Gun featured a bit so they were doing like amazing breaks and were DJing like going all around the world at the time that was the um, that was the label that they had I think Jean-Jacques Smoothie was on Plastic Ray Gun so there's, there's a feature with him I was just flicking through some of them earlier so he's in one of them there's a lot of guitar music um, I am, have always been more on the side of really enjoying dance music more so I was always you know I would always push for dance music to go in there but to be honest they were very it was a very open it was a very open book so it wasn't so much genre based it was more like who is this person are they doing something mental let's put them in there let me try and think of who the the people that we featured so Akira the Don do you remember him no so he was a like mad he's a rapper from Anglesey who ended up making it he was really big in America and then sort of we featured him a little bit so I think he's still really big in America I think he lives in New York now but was sort of not unknown here but very you know quite niche but much more successful over there than he was here so it's people like that we did a lot of stuff with touring um with touring bands that were coming so we ended up having i mean we have got the like craziest people in there Juliet lewis is in there there are features oh, on like yeah. i can't even think now the hives i think we um the hives the bees yeah i can't remember now but flicking through the magazines i'm really surprised at the pedigree of bands that we managed to get in it was like it was really quite impressive was there an interview that was i think with a touring band that uh, someone conducted in one cubicle next door to the other <laughs> cubicle in a toilet <laughs> I mean, I can't remember, but that sounds exactly like the sort of thing we would have had in there. One of the be- one of the best things I ever read in there actually was a. It was an interview that Lisa Matthews did with Kate LeBon. This was quite a long time ago. Like, I think maybe she just gone solo or something I think they went down to Barry Island okay um so that was the kind of thing they did loads of that sort of thing that so there was some of our like our writers so DJ Moneyshot was one of the um the writers he wrote loads of dance music urban stuff but also other other types of music and I think they ended up going to Bristol um and they were going to go and meet, like, I can't remember, ODB or something to interview him. And then they ended up getting kidnapped by these people and taken <laughs> to their taken to their studio. There's all sorts of weird shenanigans that happened in in all of the um, the interviews that happened. They were Amazing. quite, yeah. It, when when you read the when you read the interviews as well, a lot of it is the story of like they've set up this mad interview like that thing with the cubicle sounds exactly like something I can imagine happening. Um, or Kate Lebon, you know, on the rides at Barry Island, or Mike. Williams arm wrestling Juliet Lewis or I can't even remember there was just so many it's really ridiculous now I think about it um, so it went yeah so it started off being quite small and then as it got bigger and bigger but even from the really the early issues that you start reading you can see the like they get big names in there early and then it started off three colour and then it went full colour and then the uh, the format changed so it went from being an A5 landscape 
format to being a oh, different shape that I can't remember, but it's, it's a port, it went to being portrait. So yeah, it was, it's, re- it's really like the process of Kruger improving over the years when you look at it from the very first issue to the last issue. It's quite an amazing mm. transformation. Yeah. And um, a sad day when it uh, finished. Were you there at the end? Yeah, I didn't um, I didn't know they were planning on finishing it like that. Um, it was the day, I think it was the day that Mike won Editor of the Year at the, I can't remember what the awards is, is some like publishing awards ceremony thing. So he'd been nominated. And I still to this day think it was because we probably were all sat around pressing refresh on a, you know, on a computer, not to take anything away from Mike. But um, <laughs> anyway, we, he he won. So he was he went through. He was nominated. He got through to the final, however many, um, and we and he won. So I went up there for the award ceremony. I think it was the next day they announced that they were gonna um, they were gonna shut it down. But to be honest, they'd all you know it had. I think it had run its course. You know, you can't do something like that for free forever. Nobody ever got paid yeah. for working on it. It was a real labour of love. I think they wrote um, like with heavy hearts and empty pockets. Yeah, you know, because yes. you said it wasn't sustainable. Very empty pockets. Well, the, one of the problems with it was if you're running something like that, you're never, ever making any money to act as a buffer between you and like bankruptcy, basically. So every epi- every issue that they made, they were paying all of the advertising money went to print went for printing it. So everybody worked for free, like all the photographers, all the writers. They worked like when it came to publication deadlines. I remember them being up for like three days straight at somebody's house doing all of the design, you know, on various computers. And I think the first time I saw them after... After I'd seen them in Catapult, I read, I'd got hold of a couple of copies of Kruger and I'd given them like loads of shit because there was loads of spelling mistakes in it. And Mike was like, okay, you're going to proofread the magazine from now on. <laughs> So that was a once all of that stuff was finished, then it had to be it had to be proofed. So I'd read, so I'd do the proofs. But that was, you know, that's a really it's really time intensive, really really hard work, um, and you can't do that around. You know, if you're trying to do other things with your career, it becomes a real time suck. Yeah, and you can't, you know, you can't do other things. So yeah, I'm kind of sad that I'm sad that it ended, but also I do realise that it couldn't have gone on forever. Yeah. And if you're relying on advertising or for people to pay for things that you've done for them and for whatever reason if they don't pay you and the business doesn't have you know a buffer of cash then the business is just going to fold that's the problem with you know small enterprises like like Kruger if it's not profit or it doesn't have a business manager or the people running it don't aren't business minded because not everybody is are they some people just want to do things for the love of it and it's hard to think about going bankrupt or doing whatever you just want to do the thing don't you, you don't care about that other yeah, stuff that's what that's what we're trying to do here it's like it's not a business but you know it's time consuming and it's just we love doing what we're doing. I've got a terrible memory, so this has been amazing for filling in gaps in my memory as well. <laughs> you wrote the biography of a, a famous musician, um, yes. Stephanie Germanotta. Um, people may know her more as uh, Lady Gaga. How did that come about? Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? No, yeah. I, yeah, it's mad. You can buy it on Amazon for a penny if, either of you, if anyone's interested. A Christmas present for anyone. There you go. Um, so how it came about was I. So I moved to Sheffield. I got. A, um, I applied for a bursary through the Scott Trust to do. Um, web journalism so they were looking to develop and train more journalists um they want they wanted to increase the number of diverse voices in journalism and stuff it's a really really good scheme um the scott trust bursary scheme and i applied and i managed to get through and 
uh, went to study web journalism in Sheffield, which was amazing. And I did a bit of computer science while I was there and learned more about like, you know, very basic programming. I mean, now my programming skills are like, you know, because people can just kids can just do that stuff on their phones. But back then it was like learning all of that stuff from scratch. And while I was up there, so I had I had the bursary, but and I was doing a um, it was a master's, but it was really hard to find work around that that would fit what I was doing. I was living in I was living for free in some woman's house to au pair for her daughter or au pair to basically just be there for her daughter because she worked night shifts. Um, so I wasn't living in student halls. I was a, quite a lot older than the other students. So I, and I was like, I'm just here to work. I don't you know, I, I need to sort of keep my head down and get on with it. So a lot of the work that I, that I ended up getting was basically I emailed all of my friends and was like, can anybody give me work? I'm like I'm, I'm desperate. I just need anything. I'll do research. I'll do proofreading. I'll do whatever. And then I think I just badgered loads of people and then ended up doing research for uh, some Lonely Planet guides. And then through that, it was just more um, offering my services to do basically anything freelance. And then I started researching for pop uh, for pop music books um, because I was a music journalist. So I was like, yes, I can do that. Just give me the work. And then I carried on doing more of that. So that was the ghostwriting stuff that I started doing around then. So you won't find my name in any of the books, but um, there were, there's a period of time, I think probably around between 2009 and about 2012 or 13, where there are, there are books about JLS, about Miley Cyrus, about Lady Gaga, about Michael Buble and all sorts of other people that I ghostwrote. Um, loads of them. They're not terribly long. So I was doing a lot of that stuff. So it was during that period and I was pitching some ideas for some other books and I was on the phone to um, somebody from one of the publishing houses and I was trying to, I think I was trying to pitch something about Rihanna or something and she just said we've been talking about maybe doing a Lady Gaga book would you want to write it and so it's just being right place right time on yeah. the phone and I said yes without really thinking about what that entailed so then I ended up writing an 80,000 word book researching and writing from scratch in I think six months they oh, needed to be turned oh, in and commitment, yeah. yeah it was really hard <laughs> and I was working full time at the time and I just started a new job so it wasn't like I could be like guys is there any chance <laughs> I could just take a quick sabbatical why I write this book um so yeah, it was really hard. That's making me feel stressed just thinking about that. Yeah. yeah, it was really, really hard. I think that might have been around. No, it wasn't the time that Kruger ended. It was before Kruger ended. So it was the it was the year before that. Um, I put loads of calls into her management company, and they just not a single response no. to anything. They wouldn't respond. That, to that anything. was my, my next question. You, you didn't go for uh, New York, no? I wish. Oh. No, I put in lo I put in loads of calls to her management company. I sent her a letter, handwritten letter, because I thought you know maybe the personal touch, but it probably didn't get. Beyond a, some A and R person probably saw it and set fire to it. it was like no. <laughs> um, but the good, the. The thing about writing about her was that at that time there was still, I, you probably can't find any of this stuff now, but I, so I just finished a, you know, like a journalism qualification. So I'd done all my journalism law and all that other stuff and really like high in my mind was like, I need everything that goes in here has to be properly researched, has to be sourced. I don't want to get done for anything, you know, for any sort of falsifying, whatever. And so the hardest thing for me was trying to find the original sources of everything that she said, because yes. what, what I tended to, what I found was you do a bit of research on her or there's like a new story that comes out and you see that she's quoted as saying something and then you read it and then you see that they've quoted someone else and then you go back to what that is and then you see the quotes a bit different and then you see they've quoted something else and you go back to the original whatever and it will be like a you know a radio show that she's on or something and the original quote is completely different so all, all of these news stories because of the way the news cycle you know has started working it's 24-hour news they syndicate a lot of stuff but places don't want to publish things word for word is that you just start fighting stuff is changed subtly story by story but then when there's like 70 versions of a story that's changed very subtly so that it doesn't look like it's um, you 
know, cannibalized content on for Google. So Google ranks everything. Everything has to be slightly different. Then you're like, what? This is crazy. People just basically making stuff up um, so that there's an, you know, so there's like an endless rolling news cycle. Yeah. So that was 2010. So, I mean, think about what everything yeah. is like now with fake news, whatever. It, even then, I was really shocked when I started researching more into it, how... Uh, common that was it happened all of the time I don't know that many places really clamped down on it it's not it wasn't a thing like it is now yeah so I didn't get to meet her which I was gutted about I sent her a copy of the book in the end as well she played um she played Cardiff or she played somewhere maybe Bristol or something and I and I, I turned up at the door this is ages ago I can't remember where it was maybe it was Cardiff turned up at the turned up at the door with the book and was like um you wrote a book about her please can I can, is she gonna be out? and they were just like just laughed in my face and I was like well, can you give her the book and they were just like no any more books in the pipeline well so the Lady Gaga book finished and I think understandably I was really burned out by the end of it and then I think Kruger finished quite soon after that and the ending of big projects that you've been involved with for a really really long time something like Kruger I don't think I've well I guess we are Cardiff is a bit like that now but that's kind of it's kind of wound down a little bit but it was really hard getting over the end of Kruger and the end of the Lady Gaga book they kind of happened I think within about a year of each other I found it really hard to write anything after that because the with Kruger it had been it was such a joy even though it was a massive pain in the ass it was such a joy to do it and I did a podcast and did loads of music writing and then when it ended I was a bit like I felt a bit um a bit bummed out and it just didn't feel like I had it in me to write about anything anymore. And I found it quite hard to listen to music after that for a while. So I think I had like about a couple of years off. And then We Are Cardiff sort of started around the same time. But it wasn't really me writing anything. That was more interviewing people. So it was much easier. For a long time as well, I always wanted to go and work in radio and do, you know, to work in, you know, alternative music radio. Hence the, you know, the interview for the six music job. But what I started to feel when Kruger finished, it made me realise I had sort of the, uh, some of the joy of listening to music had gone because by the end we were being sent so much stuff you were just having to listen yeah all like all day every day and a lot of it was on cd as well so you were just having to listen to cd after cd and i started feeling a bit um i guess this is what it must feel like to work as a paid reviews person in a magazine you have to be really ruthless you haven't got time to let an album just absorb you yeah. and listen to it's it immediate impact yeah and it's you. like if it's not 30 seconds if it hasn't yeah. done in 30 seconds then it's like it's off the table and then I started realising actually there are a lot of albums that I didn't like immediately that I grew to Growers, like over time yeah. yeah I mean I didn't like the Smiths until I was like 32 or something you know what I mean yeah. and I started thinking actually it's taken a lot of the joy out of listening to music so I sort of made a bit of a conscious decision to not do too much more music journalism after that so I did a bit but it was more just to keep my hand in and it was just the odd thing here and there where I co-wrote a couple of things like um, an interview interviewed John Hopkins who we'd featured in Kruger um, and we we did a we co-wrote a, an interview with him with another guy called Adam Corner who used to also used to work in Caspol and um, writes for Crack magazine quite a lot. So we wrote a thing about that. So me and Adam co-wrote a couple of things, but I kind of yeah, it kind of petered off, and I was kind of happy about that because I wanted to sort of get back to just listening to music without being like, oh, it's too produced, oh, it's not produced enough, oh, it sounds too much like this, and just being able to enjoy it a bit more. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time talking about yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Learned a load there. I thought I like knew you, but um, definitely didn't. So much more. So much more. <laughs> um, yeah. So what we tend to do now is is ask our guests uh, to let us know their favourite album by a Welsh artist, and then we induct it into the Welsh Music Hall of Fame. You teased it earlier that he, the artist is someone you used to work with. Can you let us know who he is now? 
Well, I don't know if it's a bit nepotistic, but I don't think it is when I give you my reasons. I think it's valid. So the album that I've chosen is True Colours by High Contrast, which is, here's the album, it's right in front of me. It works well on radio, doesn't it? The album is True Colours by High Contrast and Lincoln, so High Contrast is Lincoln Barrett. He was working at Catapult when I started working there. I think he joined Catapult in 2000 and I think maybe I started that year or the year after. The reason that I've picked it, so this is his debut album. At the time, he was a drum and bass resident um, at one of the drum and bass nights in Cardiff. And he'd been putting together various demos, bits and pieces, and Hospital Records came to play in Cardiff. And um, I think he, he, he told me, I pre-interviewed him earlier this week about the album because it, you know, it came out ages ago and I was around at the time, but I just can't remember much. Yeah. It's 20 years ago. <laughs> um, so yeah, I did a pre-interview with him earlier this week just to refresh my memory. So basically, Hospital Records had come to play in Cardiff and he'd kind of grabbed them and been like oh, I've got loads of demos come listen to my stuff and he'd played it to them and they'd loved it and they'd been like they'd, I think they'd signed him there and then Dollar mini disc one there um, I can't it sort of dates it a bit it really does doesn't it it's, it's mad I still have a mini disc player in my house same yeah. <laughs> never get rid of that you never know when you might need it again um, so he yeah so he that's so that's what the, the beginnings of the album that's where it came from so the reason I've picked it is because it's it heralded the beginning of a, a like a golden era of liquid funk drum and bass. So there was there was lots of jazzy drum and bass that was being released kind of around that time. And Hospital Records, that was all of their sound really was alternative breakbeaty stuff. They released a load of lots of kind of trip hoppy, much slower stuff. But it really, it's kind of like a milestone. It was his debut album. It was produced in his bedroom. <laughs> so I was talking about it with him this week. He said he basically made it on a PC, like a home PC. Amazing. And he didn't have synths or anything at the time. So he had one drum beat that he got off a program and he just pitched it up or pitched it down and, you know, changed stuff and just copied and pasted it. And that was how he did all of the drum patterns for every single song on there, which is like... That's amazing. Th- yeah. You think about it's how... It's quite innovative, isn't it? Yeah. You think how labour-intensive that was because, he, yeah. you know, he didn't have a... Um, he didn't have a... He didn't have synths or keyboard or whatever. He said... So now, obviously, he has every, every sort of technical thing going. And at the time... He just said it was a real outpouring of, you know, a creative rush of all of these ideas that he had. And it wasn't so much about the technology. It was about the emotion and getting the songs down, not on paper. Where, where were they? Down digitally, I guess. And at that time, I think towards... So I listened to drum and bass a lot in the late 90s, but it had been a lot heavier stuff. So it had been like Breakbeat era. It had been Fabio and Groove Riders show. You know, I'd stay up late so I could record it on my, on my tape deck because <laughs> that was the only way that you could hear new drum and bass unless, you know, John Peel played a track occasionally which he might do but that was the only way you could hear new songs um so a lot of the stuff that i liked was a lot heavier and then around the end of the the 90s and beginning of the 2000s it was there was a much jazzier sort of more mellow thing that would come out and it was a lot friendlier for like for a more diverse dance floor it was brilliant so a lot of the drum and bass raves have been really male dominated quite aggressive feeling to the to those kinds of like to going out to that kind of music but True Colours is a really jazzy, disco, upbeat type of album. And it's just amazing to think he just made it in his—he just made it in his bedroom on his PC. He said he didn't even have monitors; he just had hi-fi speakers, and that was it. So that was how he made it. Um, so he had demos for little bits and pieces, and they put it together. And as a debut, so it's a debut album yeah. as well, which is amazing from literally a bedroom producer. And it has launched him into being one of the most successful drum and bass producers. Well, not just drum and bass, I guess electronic producers in the world. He was just nominated for a Grammy this week. Yeah, he was. 
Rose for the in the best remix recording category up alongside Soul Wax, Wookie, Ford and and Tracy Young. It's a massive achievement for anybody, let alone someone, you know, yeah, who started their journey uh, in a bedroom in Panath. It's just nuts. And I think he's the first drum and bass producer to ever be nominated. I I was looking earlier to see if I could find any others and I think he's the first one. Um, So it's, yeah, it's amazing. So when I remember the album came out, we had a launch party in Caspol and it was like, it was just being played everywhere all of the time. And it's made such an impact on drum and bass as a genre. So not just in Wales, but like, but globally. So after the album came out, he'd never really traveled before. He went to the States um, on a mini tour. And then after that, the, um, I mean, I'm just talking about this album, but um, I mean, after that, he's, he's just become a global name. And it is just, it's insane to think that somebody that you work with at a record shop has had such an impact on a genre everywhere. So that was one of the reasons that I picked it because it, I mean, it was really hard, by the way, guys, yeah, to try and pick. Yeah, it is a tough ask. I bet, like everyone says that, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a really big ask, but I want—I wanted to pick it for one reason because it, I really believe within the genre of drum and bass at that time, I think it really is a milestone. Like there was a lot of other producers who were bringing out music in a similar genre, but for some reason, True Colors is an album as an album. I think it's consistently every track on there is amazing considering he did it you know in his bedroom production on it is amazing the tracks are really upbeat and engaging and I think everyone on there has an amazing hook that you you know if you heard it out you would recognise what it was so yeah there was a lot of other producers at the time producing similar stuff but I think True Colours for me is probably one of the best albums that came out in that era and so you're not just talking about Welsh bands doing stuff in the Welsh scene you're talking about somebody doing something in a genre like worldwide yeah yeah. global it's really like it's incredible when you chose your, your album and I was thinking oh god I don't know anything about this really I know the name I remember seeing Lincoln about and yeah just knowing that there was someone in Panath who was doing this thing son of a counsellor and, and shaking Stevens's manager I think yeah. it was his dad or whatever yeah. but yeah drum and bass not really a genre that I'm really well versed in and I could probably Neither say me yeah, sorry um, sound like a right granddad there but it, this is exactly what we wanted to do with the podcast exactly this we wanted to use this podcast to celebrate the diversity of Welsh music expose ourselves to things Things that we weren't used to, you know, um, and sort of maybe put us a bit out of our comfort zone. So, yeah, when you mentioned this, it was like it was intimidating, but it was really <laughs> exciting. And I was listening, listening to it, as I have done a, a few times over the last few weeks, but on the way to work today. And it definitely, um, I think I beat my record cycling in. So mm. I was probably about two minutes in. It was definitely <laughs> that. You know, it's a good fitness record. <laughs> it is, yeah. My preconceptions or misconceptions of the of the genre was that it was just going to be like, you know, like jungle. Yeah, noisy. Like you mentioned noisy, but it's very soulful. You know, you could definitely see the, the, the influences in maybe Latin sort of music as well yeah. and and yeah, it wasn't as hard and it wasn't as fast as I thought it was going to be. So yeah, perfect. It strikes me as a tremendously sort of accomplished record as well. And like considering this is debut, recording it on sort of quite crap equipment really in his room, there's not many flaws in it really. No, it's... I mean, and, you know, he had help putting the songs together from um, hospital. Obviously, they, you know, they did the, they, they had input and stuff. But ultimately, he so he said, um, when I was talking to him, he said basically the whole the, the whole thing as an album came together quite easily. Um, there's a couple, I think there's a couple of live vocals on the album. One of the um, tracks, I think his music is everything, has Dion uh, Bennett. She um, is in the earth now. It's not all samples. It is a real, you know, it, it's hard to do that kind of thing if you've never done it before. So Lincoln was, I think he used to, he used to 
to sing in various like metal bands and stuff but to put together something like this to do things with live vocals it's really ambitious for a first album because to, to a certain extent you can imagine that using samples and changing stuff around is like you're you're more like an editor so you're you're creating something from an infrastructure that sort of already exists but you're just rearranging it a little bit but there's live vocals on there so it's it's not just that it's like it's a lot more than that one of the other things I really love about the album is the way that it builds so that at the beginning I think the bigger um, Return of Forever I think was probably the biggest single that came off that but when you get towards the end of the album I think my favourite bit it's the last four tracks in a row so it's Music Is Everything which has Dion singing on it Remember When Savoir Faire and Mermaid Scar just I don't know the way that it builds it's a really good sonic journey through the whole album so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff about it that I love and it's a real bridge of time when technology is you know it, it's not like it is now it's not like you can just you know people can make drum and bass tracks on their phones now yeah. it was really different so it was starting to become more accessible for people to do things like make music on their computers in their homes like he did so it's becoming I guess less of a there's more routes to to entry if you if you like it's becoming something that can be more accessible so it's less not elitist is not what I mean but it's less exclusive in the way that it can be produced that was one of the reasons I love Kruger as well was because it was it wasn't just a dominant media voice of some massive you know like a mojo or a whatever being like you know this is what we think and we are the authority or the you know the BBC or any big organisation although I understand they all have lots of different voices with, within them it was about people just making stuff for themselves and it's quite punk and I, lo- I like I love that yeah. about it that you didn't you know Lincoln didn't need to go and find a you know a producer and go to a big studio all that stuff is really expensive suddenly it becomes the equivalent of a kid you know finding a guitar again you have to have the money for the guitar I guess you have to have the money for the computer but it's much more accessible than having to do what you would have had to do before. Lots of the influences on the album as well are, like he used to go you know, digging through the crates and stuff and he was looking for samples that were from disco records and Latin records and stuff, so not looking for so much hip-hop samples or old, you know, that type of thing that was used a lot in Jungle. It's just an incredible album. Yeah, again, another misconception or preconception of mine was that, you know, I read that he studied film in, in Newport um, and he sort of cites himself as being probably more interested in film than, than music. And I was expecting a lot of samples or of dialogue from um, from films and, and wrongly so you know but maybe that sort of like interesting film and crafting you know dialogue and stuff like that is where the, the the live vocals and samples come from yeah some of the later albums he uses spoken word in slightly different ways yeah. and like the covers of some of the other albums are like you can see they're quite stylized there's a jet you know he did the james bond thing which is like i love it you can see he's very influenced by film i was asking him about music when i was interviewing him on tuesday i was asking him about music and what other stuff he listens to because i was just saying when i i had to have a very long break from writing about music until I could start listening to it properly again and he said he doesn't really listen to music because when he does all he does is he's analysing it yeah, all the time yeah, breaking it down breaking it down what's the sample where's the thing come from um, and he, so he said when he made this album True Colours it's only he said it's something like two or three layers deep and he said that the latest stuff that he makes now obviously because he has access to so much more technology there can be a hundred layers within a, within one track so the new album that he's working on and much a lot of the stuff that he's doing now he's using equipment from the 90s that uses like floppy disks and stuff oh, okay. because he said he's trying to get back to more of a, a place where the craft is not about the technology it's about the emotion of the music because I guess like it's like anything you can just keep on you can just keep on at it forever and ever and ever and it becomes more about the perfection of the technology and tweaking this 
EQ or this effect or whatever and then it's not really about the emotion of the song and what you're trying to convey and when I spoke to him he said that was the thing about this album that's really that was diff- a very very different for him was that it was more about emotion than technical craft and so he said you know if he'd made it later in his career it would have been different because he, you know his understanding of technology and thinking you know maybe it's not alright to just use one drum beat but actually when you listen to it you'd never think that would you no. I was like I was shocked when he said that that was how he did it someone asked him you know how do you know when a song's finished and he's like you know it is literally when the record label are ripping it out of your hand because I could continue to refine it and add the layer after layer into it and stuff like that but we talked about film and and also the evolution of, of his career from someone in bedroom to like this global superstar and he was on the um train spot in two soundtrack as yeah. well he had a track on there yeah working with people like underworld and you know big sort of part of um producing the music with with them in the athletes parade in the 2012 yeah. olympic m- games is mad it's mad so when, you know when i when i was thinking about what album i could pick or who, who i could choose although I, you know i don't listen to as much drum and bass as i used to there was really only one album I could pick and there was only one artist that I could pick where I was thinking about the type of not only about how you know the the um, the quality of the album but also in terms of impact on a genre beyond just Wales you can't always look at record sales to reflect the quality of anything and you can't always look at things like number of streams or whatever but I looked on his Spotify this morning and you know that they shows you like the top 10 most stream tracks his top 10 most stream tracks together have over 45 million and listens and I know that doesn't necessarily it it, it doesn't mean that some bedroom producer who only has a few streams it doesn't mean that they are that they're not good but what the one of the reasons I picked him is because you think about another Welsh act that's had that kind of impact and you'd be hard pressed to find another one doesn't mean that there aren't other ones that are amazing and it doesn't mean that I listen to drum and bass all the time but trying to think of it's really it's just really hard wasn't it but to try and think of all of the things I've listened to and then think about it more in the round this was the one I had to pick and that's why Actually, one of the I was listening to the um, to the Welsh music to the Welsh music prize special with Hugh, and one of the things he was saying when he was talking about the No Name album, I think, was that the urban music scene in Wales is often overlooked, and actually, I think urban music is actually more considered and represented than than the other you know the vast plane of the rest of electronic music. And it was really reflected, I think, in the nominees for the Welsh Music Prize. And I think it's always reflected every yeah. year. Um, and it's reflected in everything, like the, you know, the, people, uh, the bands that end up getting through for Forte or for Horizons or whatever. Um, it just reflects the kind of musical landscape that we're yeah, in, the doesn't breadth, it? The yeah, the depth. Yeah, we, we, we mentioned that quite a lot in, the, in that episode. I guess another misconception or preconception that I had when I was doing the research on uh, Lincoln was that he's a teetotal vegetarian. <laughs> so not quite the hedonism that um, the, the usual stereotype of the sort of drug culture in 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 dance music or um jungle or drum and bass sort of yeah. portrays i mean i guess if you've got to work if you're working that hard it's going to be hard to maintain any level of consistency or to you know not go mad if you haven't got that sort of i guess that grounding he was teetotal when he was working at catapult really? i didn't know he was vegetarian but um yeah, yeah he yeah he's uh, yeah he was teetotal when he was working catapult you have a lot of chats with people who are teetotal or who you know like i have just recently given up caffeine and i've it's had brave a, man 
Yeah, but do you know what? I feel so much better for really? it. Yeah, I really do. And I, I've had loads of chats with people and they're like, oh, do you want a coffee? And I'm like, I d- I'm, don't drink caffeine. And they're like, what? <laughs> and I remember a lot of conversations with Lincoln, not not just from me, but people when they found out he he was teetotal, but he was also DJ. They were like, what? How how can you make dance music? How yeah. can you DJ and not do it and, and be teetotal? It just seems to be totally mad. But yeah, he was straight. Yeah, I think he described himself as a straight edge when I first met him. Oh, okay. Because straight edge was more of a yeah, thing yeah, back yeah, then, yeah. wasn't it? In the early early 2000s yeah. but yeah there are quite a few dance music producers that are like that I think it would be really hard I love a, I love a beer yeah. <laughs> he loves to have a drink um, but I think it, it probably helps with your mental health long term yeah um, especially of, like the hours of DJing as well because yeah. he, he's quite a prolific DJ you know residencies in, in hospitality and yeah travelling a lot travelling yeah. a lot you can't really yeah sustain that and then give you the ability to create as well no there's the um, I don't know if either of you guys have read that uh, the book by the secret DJ no, um, no, no, no. no so it's I, so it's a secret DJ so you don't know who it is but basically it's uh, I presume it's a guy is talking about his um, experiences like DJing in Ibiza and producing music and going everywhere and a massive part of it is the um, is the problem sleeping because you're up late you're really you've got loads adrenaline. of adrenaline you can't sleep and then so you start turning to drink and drugs to tr- just to try and help you maintain uh, like a you know like a good schedule and obviously it doesn't do that so um it, and I think he ends up having a stroke or something because oh of the God. yeah because of the it's really interesting it's a very interesting yeah, read. To the list yeah it's a really interesting read but it really brings home to you the reality of what it's like to work a job where you know it's not even just like doing night shifts it's such infrequent work and so in such intense bursts of work where you might be you know you're on a plane for 14 hours you play a gig you get on a plane for another seven hours you play a gig you come back you sleep for five days you go play some more gigs like it's hard it's yeah. it's not a yeah it was a real eye opener reading that book so i guess like if you're teetotal it probably helps makes you it a lot bit easier. Yeah, yeah it makes it probably a bit easier i imagine lincoln's still probably very tired <laughs> but, um yeah well, thank you so much for your time today, Helia, as I said earlier, and thank you for giving us the opportunity to explore Lincoln's music or, you know, high, high contrast in a little bit more depth and, yeah, get a little bit more uh, attuned to, to drum and bass. I'm really glad you enjoyed thank it. Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's no, been thank great. You. Thank you. As ever, we'll close with some exciting new music, and this is brand new music as well. Uh, only released last week, uh, New Year's Day 2020. Um, you may know this hip-hop artist uh, from his showcase at the end of uh, an episode of Later with Jules Holland last year. His name is Mace the Great uh, from Cardiff. If you check out um, his uh, YouTube, he's got loads of exciting stuff on there with loads of Cardiff landmarks cropping up in uh, the videos. And this track is called Getting Love. I'm with my G's in the car, mm-hmm. so my things up here run, mm-hmm. bye for bye, get spun, mm-hmm. still running to the fun, mm-hmm. I got that feeling in my guts, mm-hmm. I'm with my G's in the car, mm-hmm. you little glory supporter, whose side you on? Trying to catch me slipping, but your timing's off. I'm Splot Road Mace, Fresh Prince, Kairos Pops. If I ain't top five in a city, then your mind is lost. No apologies, I'm hot property. Come take a closer look and you can see the boss in me. And if I ain't dotting eyes, then I'm crossing T's. Lifetime supply of beef if you're crossing me. Brother, I've been trying to get my bands up. Mum's over the moon because I just gave her a grandson. And I ain't with the falsified gang stuff. My cousin's still locked in a cell over madness. 
So I'm trying to get this money clean Cause you got the tax man always asking where the money's been I ain't got the sutton in my dungarees But I got the sauce to make promoters out for rummy peas I'm getting love, mm-hmm. I'm as real as they come mm-hmm. I'm with my G's in the car, mm-hmm. so my things up here rotten mm-hmm. Bye for bye, get spotten, mm-hmm. still running to the buttons mm-hmm. I got that feeling in my guts, mm-hmm. I'm with my G's in the car mm-hmm. Ooh, Mo Shelly in the room, so tell the Iraqis I'll be getting to them soon Things I gotta do so I ain't settling my mood And if I ain't with my you, I'm probably peppering a tune for me, Julie, I'm Romeo, certified before you even check the portfolio. Represent my city and that's what my city's known me for. Major keys that I've been using and they've opened doors. Now I gotta level up a game and them get a bit of clout and it's funny how they change. Ghost me that it's minor cause I'll do it on my J's. I ain't in the gym but I'm due a couple games. So I'm trying to get this money clean cause you got the tax man always asking where the money's been. I ain't got the sutton in my dungarees but I got the sauce to make promoters out for rummy peas. I'm getting love, mm-hmm. I'm as real as they come, mm-hmm. I'm with my G's in the car, mm-hmm. so my things up here rotten, mm-hmm. bye for bye, get spot, mm-hmm. still running to the buttons, mm-hmm. I got that feeling in my guts, mm-hmm. I'm with my G's in the car, mm-hmm. they've been talking on my name, mm-hmm. but they ain't talking to my face, mm-hmm. I ain't getting caught up in a game, mm-hmm. high grade smell it on me again, job time can't long me again never started from the bottom it was from the estate mm-hmm. they ain't on to my wave now it's different anytime they look upon me again mm-hmm. i'm getting love mm-hmm. i'm as real as they come mm-hmm. i'm with my g's in the car mm-hmm. so my things i feel rotten mm-hmm. bye for bye get spotten mm-hmm. still running to the funds mm-hmm. i got that feeling in my guts mm-hmm. i'm with my g's in the car mm-hmm.